good morning, everyone. So glad you're here today. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 14. And so if you have your Bibles or if you have an app and you could uh, go to John 14, that'd be super awesome. This morning, I have the privilege of talking to you about one of the greatest promises that Jesus made to us. And it's the promise of a spirit-empowered life. A spirit-indwelt, a spirit-empowered life. Now, last Sunday, uh, I want to set some context for this idea of a spirit-empowered life. Last Sunday, we talked about how in the wilderness days, when Israel left Egypt and was delivered out of Egypt, the Lord our God commanded the Israelite nation to build a tabernacle according to the specifications in the book of Leviticus. And the idea of a tabernacle is the idea of camping out. Everybody likes to camp. God wanted to camp out and dwell amongst his people. So in Leviticus, he gives elaborate instructions and says, this is what I want my camp to look like, my tabernacle to look like. And so during the day, God's presence could be experienced and felt with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so the, those were signs that assured God's people that he was truly in their midst. Now, can you just imagine for a moment how spectacular it would be to experience God's presence in such a way and in such a place and time as a tabernacle in a wilderness? It had to be amazing. But then later on in Israel's history, during the reign of the great kings, God's people built a dwelling for God in the great city of Jerusalem. They built a temple. And like the tabernacle, the temple was to be a place, a monet is the Greek word for place, a place where God would dwell, meno, to, where he would remain with his people. Now what's cool about the Jewish people is they never forget their history. So even though they were building this temple and they were doing it in the great city of Jerusalem and making a, a dwelling for God's name, they were commanded not to forget where they came from. And so in places like Deuteronomy 16, 16, they were commanded to remember their deliverance from Egypt. And they were told to hold festivals to commemorate what had happened. And one of those festivals was the Festival of Tabernacles, the Festival of Tents. They were to appear before the Lord their God in a place that he would choose. If it was a tabernacle, if it was a temple, they were commanded to continue to carry out that festival. So just like in wilderness days, during the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a seven-day holiday. Uh, the kids would get to miss school, you know. They would take tree branches, uh, maybe palm branches or another kind of branch, and they would build these little forts, these little tents, these little tabernacles for themselves in Jerusalem. I remember when I was a young kid, we'd go down to the creek bed, and we'd grab all these dead branches, and we'd stack them up and make forts and, and uh, we never stayed in them overnight but it's the same concept the farmer would always plow them out he didn't want us messing around down there uh, in the creek bed but these tabernacles were to be uh, a place where they camped in the shadow of the temple and the idea was that they were coming to Jerusalem and they were in the shadow of the temple in their little tabernacles and they were uh, hanging out in the presence of God and it was kind of like reliving their tabernacle uh, days in John 14, Jesus takes that imagery of a tent, of a tabernacle, 
And he says, in my father's house, there's going to be many places or tabernacles. And that's why I'm going to the father, Jesus says. I'm going there to prepare a place like a tabernacle so that you can be with me and the father forever. And if I go to heaven and I make that kind of tabernacle tent for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you'll be with me forever. And uh, so just like in the past, God made a special place for his people in his presence. So in the future, for all eternity, Jesus would make a special place for all who believe in the Father's presence. The past reflects our future hope. Uh, And and this is what John 14, uh, Jesus is laying out for us. Now, what about the present? In the past, the tabernacle, the temple. In the future, a heavenly dwelling, a place. What about the present? Well, in the present, Jesus has something very special in mind for us, and it is called a spirit-empowered, spirit-indwelt life. Uh, I want to go back for a moment. In John chapter, uh, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus begins painting a picture, and it started back during the Feast of Tabernacles. Imagine all these people in their tents, in the shadow of the temple, and they're remembering how God dwelt among them, cloud uh, and, and a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day, and they're celebrating God's presence. In John 7, in the midst of the Feast of the Tabernacles, on the last and the most important day, Jesus always chooses his timing very carefully. He stand, is this TV uh, off? Is this uh, working? Nope, no TV. We're going to have to do this old school. Uh, John chapter 7. During the Feast of Tabernacles, on the last and most important day, Jesus stands up and he cries out. All these people are in their tents. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He says, the one who believes in me, it'll be just as the scriptures say. He'll have streams of living water flowing from deep within him. And John tells us in John 7, 39, that Jesus said this about the spirit, that the one who believed in Jesus Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Feast of Tabernacles, why did he choose that time? As mesmerized as they were with the idea of God dwelling amongst them, God tabernacling amongst them, Jesus was saying something even greater is about to happen. And it's God tabernacling in you. Not just alongside you, not just you in his shadow, but God in you. That's John 7. So in John 14, Jesus continues this idea, and he picks right up in verse 15. He says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you a helper, another counselor, to be with you forever. He is, not it, the Holy Spirit is not just a force or energy of God. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. If I had that slide on the TV, I'd have that bolded. I'm sending the spirit of the living God, and he will not just remain with you, He will be in you. 
What's possibly greater than God tabernacling among you is God camping within you, within your very life. This is the idea of a spirit indwelt, a spirit empowered, God camping within us and living out his life through us. That is the foundation of that idea. Do not let the incredible power of Jesus' promise escape you. In the past, they experienced God's presence in a special place, a tabernacle or a tent. In the future, God's people will experience God's presence in a special place that Jesus is preparing. In the present, you are that special place where God will dwell within you. Uh, You are, you yourself, those who believe, those who love God, those who keep his commandments, those who have been cleansed, those who are yielded before God, you become that place where God's presence is made manifest. The Father, just as the Father abides in Christ, dwells in Christ, remains in Christ, uh, tabernacles in Christ. So Jesus is saying the Spirit of God will remain in you and will be in you. Another counselor will come and he will be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. Maybe the only greater promise than this is the one of resurrection, that just as Christ was raised from the grave, we shall also. But here he's saying the spirit will be in you as the father's in me. Now, in John 15, this is the next chapter in John, verse 26. Jesus keeps reiterating this promise. When the counselor comes, the one I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify about me. Next chapter after that, John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It's for your good that I'm going away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I'm going to send him to you. And so... How does the the gospel of John continue to culminate? John 20, go a few chapters further. Jesus has died and he's been raised from the grave and he makes some different appearances to his disciples. And on one occasion, he appears in the upper room with the 12 and he says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. And after saying this, he breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the gift. It's good I'm leaving the world until I come again to take you to be with me where my Father is in this special place in heaven. The Spirit of God will now dwell and tabernacle in you. You will be that place. He will remain in you and be in you. Now, the Apostle Paul later on picks up on this idea. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Jesus, or Paul says, don't you know that your body is a temple? It's a place. It's a special place. It's a dwelling place. For who? For the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. You know, it used to be that people would go to the temple to feel a connection with God. But now God, our bodies, our lives are a temple. 
And as people connect with us, they get a sense of the presence and glory of God. We are lights in a dark world. We're, we're his ministers, his priests. And we're ministering in the temple of our own bodies. And, and we're holding out light and truth and love and, and every good thing to a world darkened by sin. And uh, you're a temple. Your, your life should be a place of worship. And worship should be reflected uh, 24-7 in your body, in your temple. It's an incredible idea. The spirit of God is in you. You were bought with the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 1.14, Paul says, the Holy Spirit is a down payment of the inheritance that you're going to get. You're going to inherit a place in heaven where God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, and the Spirit will dwell with you and in you. But the down payment of that is right now God gives you his Holy Spirit. And he's a guarantee, a down payment, a foretaste of your full inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. The possession, the possession is you. God put his Holy Spirit in you. He's marked you. And he's laid claim on you until the day of redemption when he comes to take you to be with him forever. You know, gangs will mark a person to claim ownership over them. And if anybody else comes across that person and sees that marking, they know to whom that person belongs. Sadly and tragically, uh, the mob and the cartels and sex traffickers and all sorts of people will literally brand a person and mark them to lay claim on them to say, this person is ours and this is the place and this is who they belong to. Well, God doesn't mark our flesh. He marks our spirit and he gives us his Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is a marker that nobody can snatch us out of God's hand, that we belong to no other but to God himself. He is a down payment. He is a mark. Now, when the early church was born in Acts 2, it says, Peter stands up and he says, you know, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. That day happened in Acts 1, Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, God poured out his spirit on all people. And the invitation to those who watched the spectacle of the pillar of fire, the, 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 the tongues of fire fall on God's people, Peter said, repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, it's for your children, and it's for everybody who is far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This promise is for you, a spirit-empowered, a spirit-indwelt life. The Holy Spirit, the counselor, he is the gift that will keep on giving. He's our helper, our teacher, our mentor, our advocate, our defender, our intercessor, our guarantor of what we will inherit. We are his temple I wonder, do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you know anything about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, the indwelling of this power in your life? This last year, uh, I took some men from the men's ministry and we did something we called Disciple Catalyst. And we just began exploring, using the scriptures alone, we began exploring the nature of these relationships, like what is the Father's purpose? And what's the human dilemma that we need to be saved from, right? But we spent 
time talking about what it means to be Christ-centered, to abide in Christ. And, uh, and there's a summary of all the verses that talk about it. And, and it might have been like seven or eight pages of material that we kind of uh, cataloged of what it means to be indwelt by Christ, to abide in Christ. But then the document on the Holy Spirit was actually like 12 pages. We just listed all the scriptures. The Bible has so much to say about the spirit-empowered life. It has as much or more to say about that than it does abiding in Christ. And yet, do we know the Holy Spirit? Do we know this life that we're to be living? The other gospel writers, John was a gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially Luke. Luke gives special care to emphasize Jesus' relationship to the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit. Uh, on one occasion, he was driven by the Spirit of God out into the wilderness. Driven, that's strong language. Jesus ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. At the end of his life, Jesus was raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's John that's telling us that this same Spirit that's in Jesus now tabernacles and dwells in us. We don't have to go to a place to connect with God's presence. By faith, God takes residence in us by his spirit. The same spirit that Jesus had indwelling him now indwells us. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, well then, he who raised Christ from the dead, he can take your mortal body and bring it to life through his spirit who lives in you. A whole new life of power and of God's presence is opened up to us by God's spirit. The same spirit that inhabited Jesus, tabernacled in him, inhabits us. And so John 14 is a place where Jesus says, not only are you going to be the tabernacle, but he begins to flesh out what our lives look like as the spirit indwells within us. And this is foreign territory for a lot of believers, sadly. We've never inventoried what this life is like by God's spirit. Now, this morning, I'm gonna, we're gonna mention five marks of a spirit-empowered, spirit-indwelt life. I'm gonna talk about one of them this morning. I'm gonna talk about the, the next four next week. Save a little bit back. But here's what I wanna talk about this morning. That one of the marks of a spirit-empowered life is that your life is filled with power. Your life is filled with power. So let's look at a couple of verses in John 14 just to whet our appetite. Verse 12 of John 14, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, you can take this to the bank. The one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. Wow. Pause there. You will do the works that I do. Well, what kind of works has Jesus been doing in the Gospel of John, for instance? But then he says, and he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, if you struggled with the first part of that, how much more do you struggle with the second part? Not only will you do the works, you will do even greater works. In the Greek, it's mega You'll do mega works, not mega, mega, okay? 
uh, the church would have so much more integrity and credibility if we stuck with uh, the mega works of Jesus, right? You all do greater, even greater things because I'm going to the Father. My authority is going to be dispersed amongst you to do greater things. Now, verse 13, look at verse 13. Jesus doesn't let off the throttle here. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Awesome, Lord, I so badly want to win the lottery to take care of all of my debts, the church's mortgage, and whatever else needs to be covered. Help me win the lottery. Lord Jesus, resurrect the 1985 Bears and let's crush the Packers and lay this demon to rest forever. Whatever you ask. So we see these words and we kind of have a sense of what they mean. But maybe our application needs some refinement. I don't know. You know... uh, Interesting, in Matthew 17, do you remember when Jesus, he was with the 12 and he took three aside, Matthew, or uh, Peter, James, and John, and he took them up on a mountain. And when he went up on the side of the mountain, a bright light shone and Jesus was transfigured from human form to like a divine form. He was glorified, like, and the the disciples are watching this. And... uh, and Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah who are also glorified and they're all three talking to each other. Could you imagine being there? Peter says in Matthew 17, he says, it's really good that we're here. And so he's saying, this is awesome. This is the best thing that we could ever imagine happening, that we're here and, and here's Moses and Elijah and Jesus and you guys are glorified and we're in your presence and we feel so connected on this mountaintop experience with God. And, and Peter says, let's set up three tabernacles. A tent for you, Jesus, a tent for you, Elijah, and a tent for Moses. The only other thing he could have said is, let's set up some three, three tents for us too. And let's all just camp out on this mountain and stay here. It's so good to be here. But as soon as Peter says that, uh, everything goes away and it's just Jesus remaining there. And they had this mountaintop experience. Here's the presence of God and, and let's capture this. Let's tabernacle this moment. Let's camp together and make this a, a, an ongoing reality. And Jesus says in Matthew 17, he says, truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell this whole mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. The correlation of John 14 and Matthew 17 is this, is that if God is dwelling alongside you, or camping within you, there ought to be evidence of real power in your life. Peter's like, this is so good, but Jesus is like, you're going to be able to move mountains. Uh, in John 14, this is so good. You can, you know, the idea of God, and you, you'll be able to ask for whatever you want in his name. Mountain-moving prayer. Nothing will be impossible. He's not mentioning any words here. Whatever you ask, you'll be able to do even greater works than what I've done. What does it mean to be filled with power? Would you say that those descriptors mark your prayer life or your life, that you move mountains, that whatever you ask in God's name, uh, would you say these kinds of things? Would you say there's evidence of God's power at work in your life? And if not, how might the Holy Spirit manifest that kind of power 
in your life. I think most people reading these verses feel like they're standing on the outside of that promise, not on the inside of that promise of power. Do you agree? It's like, uh, maybe power-ish. I have some little bit, like maybe a little bit, you know, but, but I should be drinking the power and it should be like even greater things. What does it mean that Jesus says even greater things? Now, there's three possibilities that people lock onto to what Jesus means when he says even greater things. Uh, think of greater things in terms of quality, the quality of works, that there could be an even greater quality of work that happens in your life than even what happened in Jesus. Now, would you agree that Jesus did some pretty great works? Anybody agree with that? Like turning water into wine. That's not something that you see too often. I mean, I would put that on a, a one or two on the Richter scale of pretty amazing, right? But then uh, how about the feeding of 5,000 people, taking a few loaves and fish and multiplying them and feeding so many, and then he did the 4,000. I would say uh, I'll give you a three or four on the Richter scale of amazing Jesus for feeding so many people. But then a little while later, he walked on water. Now, what would you give that? Maybe four or five or six, I don't know. How about in John 9 when he takes a blind man who has been blind from birth and gives him sight? Where does that fit on the Richter scale of amazing? Or how about the resurrection of Lazarus? A man who died, he was in a tomb for four days, in burial spices, his body decaying, the odor building, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And the man came out, and they unwrapped him, and he, pray, he praised God. That's like... We're getting up there. Jesus' own resurrection, I'd say that's a perfect 10. That's as big as it gets. A feature of John's gospel has been all these signs. The signs build and they culminate up to the resurrection of Lazarus, and they all kind of look toward the resurrection of Jesus. These are the works of Jesus. They are as great as anything that we've ever heard of happening, happening. Uh, what could we ask God for or even do that could be possibly greater than these signs? And so this seems to be the obvious meaning of the text. You think what I've been doing is great, you're going to be doing things of quality even greater. That's one. And so groups, Christians will lay hold of that. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've never seen anybody do anything greater than Jesus. Now, I've known people to boast that they've done greater things than Jesus. I've heard anecdotal evidence of people telling stories, but when you try to track it down and pinpoint it, it gets very sketchy. There doesn't seem to be evidence of people doing greater things than Jesus. You look at the Bible and uh, the days of Moses. Moses worked signs and wonders before the house of Pharaoh and uh, in, in the wilderness, he worked signs and wonders, and Moses brought the law, and, and God attested to Moses with signs and wonders to confirm that he was truly of God. But then you see kind of a drop and a fall off of signs and wonders and things of that nature until you get to the prophets. And the prophets worked signs and wonders, Elijah and Elisha being the greatest of them. And those signs were an attestation that they're Messages of warning and rebuke to the people of Israel needed to be heeded and that these were truly God's servants. And then there's a, a, a silent period and, and all the miracles and stuff kind of fall off. And you get to Jesus. 
And no one's ever done the things that Jesus has done. And then after Jesus, you have the early church and the apostles. And the apostles did things like Jesus. They raised the dead. They healed. Uh, but as the, uh, the early church is born, you see kind of a, a trailing off of greater works. You don't see resurrections happening every day. You don't see the kinds of manifestations that are greater in quality. And so is that what Jesus means, even greater things? That if you have the power, you'll be Jesus plus. Another possibility that people suggest is that it's not greater in quality, but greater in quantity. That here you have Jesus, one person, or 12 disciples, or 70 people, or 500 believers. What is the capacity of 500 people to do good works? You will do even greater numerically, quantitatively, like in quantity. There are billions of Christians, theoretically, right now, as we sit here, there should be billions and billions of acts of uh, of righteousness and, 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 and prayer and, and whatnot and healing going on all over the world. There's greater numerical, right? But a third possibility is that you could look at Jesus' words and understand them as greater in effect. Greater in effect. And here's what I mean. Every miracle and sign Jesus ever worked was a means to a greater end. What was the greater end? Every miracle was a means to a greater effect. And that greater effect was Jesus did signs and wonders to evoke faith, to make men believe. Even the gospel writer John tells us, at the end of the gospel of John, he uses this word mega. He says, this was written that men might believe, right? It was written that men might believe. All this recording, Jesus allowed Thomas to see and touch his nail-scarred hand that Thomas might believe. But Jesus says, greater is he who believes, though he does not see. It's pretty great when God works a miracle. People see it and they believe. But what's greater than that? A greater effect is that people would believe, though not seen. That people would believe on the testimony of the word of on Jesus himself. It's a great thing to see men believe. It's even greater for faith to have its effect on a man. Imagine a person being filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with power, filled with love where they were loveless, filled with knowledge where they were ignorant, filled with hope where they were filled with despair, filled with peace and shalom where there was chaos. Uh, God's grace washing a person who'd given up hope of any kind of redemption. God's grace enabling a person to pass from death to life. God's wrath no longer remaining on them. God's power to, to forgive a person and free them of condemnation and shame and guilt, to give them a resurrection body. We get to watch all the gospel seeds that have been planted from the time of Jesus to the present bear out their fruit. We are part of an even greater manifestation of God's power. We see God's power multiplied billions of times over in the lives of people to the edges of the earth. We get to pray kingdom-moving prayers. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get to pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. Jesus says, as, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you to be a worker now. We get to pray for the gospel to spread rapidly and be received. 
for great and effective doors to be open. The full power of the Holy Spirit at work in us and through us and through our prayers. The epistles might provide evidence to us that this third kind of greater is what Jesus had in mind. The early church did not pray for the 85 bears to win the Super Bowl. They didn't pray for lottery tickets. They may have prayed for healing, and they did pray for healing. They may have prayed for resurrections. But by far, the early church, what do we see them praying for? We see them praying for the faith, for the effect of faith to be like ripples throughout the ends of the earth. Fill the world with knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Fill this world with love. Open up doors. Make your gospel spread rapidly. Allow people to receive it. All the prayers of the epistles of the New Testament seem to point that God has a greater effect, impact in mind, his power affecting people more widely and profoundly than even in those first days of the church. Through his church, Jesus ascended. Why did he ascend? Why did he ascend? To fill the church with his presence and his power and to do mighty, great works. What greater work is there to be done than to bring a person to a place of faith. Jesus healed decaying flesh in order to turn stubborn hearts toward faith. We can turn hearts toward faith by the simple proclamation of Jesus. The miracle of belief is greater than the sign or the miracle that points and begets that faith. The eyes of the blind man were healed, not just so that he could see physically, but so that he could see and believe spiritually in Jesus. The faith is the greater thing that the man was gifted with. Billions upon billions of people have believed in Jesus, not on the basis of miracles, but on the basis of a miracle, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus. The miracle of Jesus' ascension is a sufficient base for faith. And so even greater than Thomas, who wanted to see and wanted to have a sign like the Pharisees, they wanted to have their miracles, even greater is those who believe, though not seen. And this is the exact kind of power that's on display every day in our lives as we serve God. Why don't I experience the power of God? It might be because I'm idle in service instead of standing shoulder to shoulder alongside the helper in his work in the world. Why am I not feeling God's power? I might be on the sidelines instead of down on the field where God wants me. His power is at display all over the world, in our lives, through our prayers. God is moving mountains, the most stubborn being that of human hearts of unbelief. Would you like to live a spirit-empowered life would you like the ripple effects of God's miracle in Jesus, the resurrection, to send uh, waves across the, 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 the earth? Of course you would. The believer is filled with power. Next week we're going to talk about that the believer is filled with love by the Spirit. He's a spirit of love. The believer is filled with knowledge and wisdom and all understanding because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. We're also filled with hope because Jesus says in this passage, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. I'm going to send my spirit to you. We're also filled with peace, shalom. 
Shalom is the great ambition of the Jewish people. Shalom, peace. And we have a spirit of peace. And Jesus says, peace I leave with you, peace I give you. So we're going to unpack more of the spirit-empowered life next week. But this morning, we invite God's spirit to awaken faith within us and awaken faith through us, to let his power melt us but also melt hearts, to move this stubborn mountain and also other stubborn mountains. Will you pray for God's power to be manifest in your life? as he draws all men onto himself. Let's pray, dear Father, help us to understand what it means to be filled with power and to live in power and to be a conduit of your power, to draw all men onto yourself, that all men might be a dwelling place, that they might be temples, that they might minister your your glory on your behalf to a world filled with darkness. Father, help us to lay hold of this promise of a spirit-indwelt life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. stand and I want to lead us in a, just a moment of response today. Um, there's an ancient prayer that goes like this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. Our hearts are restless till they rest in you. Maybe you're here in this place today and couple weeks here into the new year and you're feeling just a little restless, whether it's the, the New Year's resolutions and goals you're trying to stay on top of or just the, the to-do list and the schedules, just all the stuff you're trying to manage, all that is good, but it can leave us restless sometimes.